wonderful encouragement and a beautiful song focusing our attention on Jesus. Choir, thank you. Uh, Great to have the choir back helping to lead us in worship. And wonderful to be here this morning with the church family. So this morning, please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John is towards the end of the New Testament. We're going to be starting a series through John's first epistle through 1 John. You know, just a few years ago, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey and found that a whopping 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. 70% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Now, a more recent study, actually earlier this year, uh, by Barna, uh, the Barna Group, came out with a survey that said 43% of Americans believe that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. Okay? Now, these are high numbers. And I know, like many, like myself, many of you are thinking, wait, th- these things aren't true. But you just think about that on a surface level. 70% of Americans say they believe that, uh, that they're Christians. They claim to be Christians. But only 43% say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate. Those two numbers cannot go together. Other than the fact that those numbers are likely highly, highly... Uh, uh, they're, they're too high, right? They're just overstated. Those two numbers can't go together. 70% can't believe that they're Christians, but only 43% say that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. There is so much confusion over what it means to be a Christian. There is so much confusion over who Jesus is. There is so much confusion over what it means to follow Jesus. So we can be skeptical of those numbers, and we can say, look, they can't be accurate. Those things can't go together. The truth is, we live in a confused society. And there's a lot of reasons for that confusion. But one of those reasons is this synergism between God and country. That America is a Christian nation, and and we're all Christians in America. Now, some of us believe that in this room. Many churchgoers today may not believe that, but that is certainly a widespread thought. I mean, I've been to seven different countries outside the United States on mission trips. And frankly, if you count the state of West Virginia, you just make that eight people. Eight, all right? So there's a lot of places I've been, and everywhere I've been, I've heard the same thing. Well, everybody in America is a Christian, right? It's just the assumption. If you're from America, you're a Christian. If you're from America, you worship Jesus. That's just the assumption. Now, we know that's not true, right? We know that's not true, Not only is it not true, it's not a good thing for people to think that. Why is it not a good thing? Well, you think about it. America is a leading uh, country when it comes to the propagation of illicit material and just the decadence. And to have Christianity so closely associated with our culture is not a good thing. And while we are uh, aware that in years gone by, a higher percentage of Americans went to church on a regular basis and maybe even lived with some morals that were more in line with Scripture, we would all admit that Christianity is much more than external religious activity. Christianity is a heart issue, a faith issue in the one true and living God in Jesus Christ. Now this morning we begin this series in First John. We've titled it, uh, That You May Know, which will be Uh, obvious and apparent as we continue through this study and as we look at what the Apostle John is writing to to these churches. So I want to encourage you, 
every single week, okay, as we study this, this letter for the course of the next several months, I want to encourage you every single week to read through the entirety of this short five-chapter letter, okay? So start on Monday, read a chapter a day. Uh, it won't take long, but just read through this letter as we study it together. So if you read through that, some of you may have this book memorized by the time we're finished with this study. For now, though, would you stand? And we're going to read together in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read the, the first four verses. 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time together to gather with our church family, to hear your spirit, to express our devotion and our love to you in in song. Lord, to pray for those who are hurting. We've come today as needy people, and we need and desire to be filled with your spirit and to be changed even this morning. Would you transform us by the power of your word and by the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, I want us to begin with understanding 1 John as a whole. So we're going to understand 1 John here as a whole. And I want to just first make this very clear. The letter here that John writes uh, is classified as one of the epistles. That is one of the letters. It is a letter written to churches or to people. However, when you read the opening of a letter, it doesn't sound so much like a letter, does it? I mean, it doesn't say to so-and-so. It doesn't say to these churches or to those churches. It doesn't say to that person. There's no greeting there. There's a lot of things that are missing that we would expect from a letter. There's no, if we get to the end of it, you're going to see it's not someone signing off like a salutation. Hey, this is from the Apostle John, right? The, the son of Zebedee. It doesn't say that in there. It reads actually a little bit more like a sermon than it does... A letter. There is good evidence, though, that John, the apostle, wrote the letter. In fact, when we read through this text, you're going to see over and over again consistent themes from his gospel that he wrote, the gospel of John. The same style in which he wrote. And it's clear from history that all of the early church fathers attributed this letter to the apostle John. So we can be confident that this letter was written by John, even though he never states it in the letter itself. Now, in a nutshell, we should ask, why did John write this letter? Why did he write this letter? And what we can say is this. John wrote to reassure his readers that they were genuine followers of Christ. John wrote to assure his readers that they were genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Really sorry about the screens. We had a little technical issue this morning, but I'll just try to say it again so you can, if you're taking notes, uh, you can get it. John wrote to reassure his readers that they were genuine followers of Jesus Christ. 
Let me explain. The Apostle John ministered extensively in the region of Ephesus. And it's clear from John's language in this letter that he had close relationships with the people that he's writing to. Over and over again in the letter, he, he refers to them as dear children or beloved ones. He just says beloved. Beloved, dear children, little children. John loved these people dearly, and he felt a sense of spiritual responsibility for them. And frankly, he knew what was happening in these churches. It's likely that he was writing to a group of churches, to several churches that were in this region, and he knew what was going on. Flip over with me to 1 John chapter 2, if you will. 1 John chapter 2, we'll look at verses 18 through 20. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that, the, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us us. Let me read again, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John knew what was taking place in these churches. He knew what was happening with the people all around them. This begs the question, well, who are the people that are denying that Jesus Christ is uh, the God come in the flesh? Who are the people who have left, who have come from, who have left us? They they were part of us, but they went out because they're not of us. Well, there's much speculation about this. Perhaps the most compelling guess is that these were people who had bought into a philosophy that viewed Jesus as less than the God-man. They bought into this philosophy that viewed Jesus as less than the God-man. They were Gnostics. They were people who believed that Jesus uh, was not ultimately God. See, they, Gnostics believe that all matter, all material is evil. So how could Jesus really be God? If he really had flesh and bone, he would have been evil. So Jesus really wasn't God. They also argued that salvation didn't depend on blood atonement in Christ. But for a Gnostic, they believe that salvation was all about a special knowledge that would have been given to them. They were docetists. So docetists uh, is someone who believes that Jesus only appeared to be God. That maybe at His baptism, the Spirit of God came and adopted the man Jesus, but then at His crucifixion, He left Jesus. So it wasn't God who died on the cross. It was just a man named Jesus who died on the cross. God wouldn't do that. There was no atonement in Him that couldn't have happened. Well, John was concerned that his readers would fall for the lies of these false teachers. New Testament scholar Colin Cruz suggests that John wrote to encourage his readers to persist in true fellowship and not to abandon true fellowship and to join with a false fellowship. That is, stay in the church of God. Keep believing in Jesus. Don't follow these teachers who have left us because they were never of us. Don't believe their lies. Don't run after them. Don't chase after them. 
So John is writing here, not so much to correct or con- to, to confront false teachers and false teachings, though through his writings that's happening, right? But he's writing to reassure his readers that they are on the correct path. In the face of all the false teaching that's taking place, John is saying just stay true to Jesus. Just stay, stay true to the apostolic teaching we're here. Now, throughout the letter, we get a lot of different reasons why John is writing, okay? So, I believe that the ultimate reason, if we look at this, is found in 1 John chapter 5.13. He's writing so that they may know they have eternal life. He's writing so that they know they may have eternal life. Look there with me, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He is... Excuse me, that's chapter 4. Chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And then there's all these other purpose statements that John gives throughout the entire letter. So let me just read a few of them to you. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That they may have fellowship with us and with God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. That His joy may be made complete. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, that they may not sin. 1 John chapter 2 verse 3 and verses 5 and 6, so that they'll know if they've come to know Him and are in Him. 1 John chapter 2 verse 26, so that they'll know who's trying to deceive them. 1 John chapter 3 verse 10, so that they'll know the children of God and the children of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. So that they'll know if they've passed out of death and into life. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 19. So that they'll know that they are of the truth. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So that they will be able to discern the Spirit of God. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 2, and then again in verse 18. So that they'll know if they are children of God having been born of God. Now, if you're trying to take notes on that, listen, just read through the text because you're going to see it. It's going to stand out to you. You're going to see it over and over again. John is writing to reassure, to bolster the faith. He wants them to know truth from error. He wants them to know and to be assured that they are children of God, that they are rightly connected to Him. And while John wrote to ancient believers, he's writing to us as well. And that's the point that you see up there right now. By God's grace, John's letter serves to bolster our assurance that we are children of God. That we are established in the faith and so that we can understand what it means to be a Christian. What it means to follow Christ. What this looks like. And what we'll see is that John is emphasizing the fact that the way that we live our lives matters. John is emphasizing the fact that the way that we live our lives matters. John would call into question a profession of faith that does not result in a changed life. John would call into question a profession of faith that does not result in a changed life. Mark Dever, in his helpful New Testament survey book, suggests that according to John, Christians not only believe certain things... They live and they love accordingly. Saving faith necessarily has ethical and moral ramifications in our lives. 
Saving faith necessarily has ethical and moral ramifications in our lives. It would be wise then, friends, for us to read 1 John introspectively. It would be wise for us to read 1 John introspectively. Truly, some of us in this room need right now to be reassured of our relationship with Jesus, of our fellowship with the triune God. We need that reassurance. We're struggling for whatever reason, and we need that reassurance. And friends, that's why John's writing. He wants you to have that assurance of faith. But others in this room may need to reassess whether or not we are in fellowship with the triune God. Now, with all the confusion surrounding what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to follow Jesus, the message of 1 John is timely. It's timely for us. So I wanted to transition now to the opening four verses of the letter, and I want us to focus on understanding Jesus. I want us to focus on understanding Jesus. See, we can get several things wrong, but if we get Jesus wrong, we'll never get Christianity right. Right? If we want to understand Christianity, then we have to get Jesus right. If we want to understand Christianity, then we have to get Jesus right. It's kind of like building a house, friends. If you don't get the foundation right, then everything else will go wrong. I mean, you can have broken windows. You can have doors with no locks on them. And this is going to be hard to believe, but you can have no air conditioning. And, and you can have a leaky roof. And guess what? You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. But if the foundation is wrong, everything else is going to fall apart. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the rock upon which faith is built. If we don't get Jesus right, then we're doomed. And that's because it's faith in Jesus that matters and not just faith in itself. You know, we live in a world that says, just have faith. You just got to believe And it's undefined, right? It's left undefined. Believe what? Believe in yourself? Well, I can really believe in myself and have faith that I could have played college football and been an NFL quarterback, but it wasn't going to happen. No matter how much faith I had, it wasn't going to happen. It's the object of our faith that matters. It's what we place our faith in that matters. In our living room at our house, we have this really nice-looking leather recliner. And it was really nice at one point. And because we live there, we know how to sit on it so it won't fall over. However, if we're not careful to warn people who come to our house, they're going to sit on it, they're going to try to recline on it, and they're going to fall all the way over. Sorry, Scott Giles. (laughs) It wasn't on purpose that we didn't warn you about that. The problem is the chair is broken. We can have faith sitting in that chair, but it's a foolish faith because it's not going to hold you up. You're going to fall over. But Jesus is the rock of salvation. And we put our hope in Jesus Christ and He will not let us down. But we have to understand that the world we live in wants to redefine Jesus wants to make Jesus something less than He is, whose scripture, uh, att- what Scripture attests to Him. But that's why John, I believe, is so adamant here. He's writing to confirm the identity of Jesus. He's writing to 
to confirm who Jesus is. He says he's the eternal one, the one who is with the Father. Now, most of you, as we read through this passage, probably immediately thought about the prologue to the Gospel of John. Because it sounds so similar, right? There's so much there that is, is you know, identical. Let me just read for you John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not occur. So what do you have there? You have the idea of beginning. You have the idea of word of life. You have the idea of uh, being with the Father. It's a very similar passage, right? So John is telling us that Jesus is the preexistent one. He is the one who was with the Father from the beginning. The Jewish man born of the Virgin Mary is none other than the eternal Son of God. New Testament theologian and the, the, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Danny Aiken, says John is fighting for both Jesus' deity and humanity. In other words, Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Now, by the way, both of those are necessary to accomplish our salvation. Both of those are necessary for, for, to accomplish our salvation. If Jesus was only God, then he couldn't represent humanity on the cross and pay for the sin of humanity. He couldn't do that. But he's fully man. So he is able to represent us on the cross. If Jesus was only man, then he would have a sin nature just like you and me. And because of that, he would be unqualified to serve as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But Jesus is both man and God. And he lived a perfect life. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary. He was born of Mary, of a woman. But he is fully God. So Jesus is the one who existed in perfect fellowship with the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He lacked nothing. Perfect in majesty and glory. Perfect in joy. Perfect in love. And then, friends, the unimaginable. As John writes in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. The eternal Word of God. The eternal Son of God takes on flesh. He becomes one of us and He dwelt among us. The author of life, the perfect one, takes on flesh. Jesus made manifest. The eternal Son of God steps into history to fully reveal God. The fullness of God, Paul writes in Colossians, dwells in Him. The fullness of God. And John is saying, listen, I know this to be true. I know this to be true. That's what he's telling the church. That's what he's reassuring the church. I know this to be true. I've seen him. In fact, he says, I heard him. I heard him teach with authority. I heard him command the wind and the waves. I heard him offer forgiveness to people. I heard him cry. I heard him with his emotions. And then I heard him call forth Lazarus from the dead with the power of his word. Just like the word of power that he spoke the world into existence. And said, let there be light. This is Jesus. He is powerful. He is God, yet He is man. He says, I've seen Him. 
Not only did I hear him, I saw him. I looked upon him. I saw him perform these miracles. I saw him exercise compassion. I saw him get angry at injustice. I saw him pray. God praying to God. The man, Jesus Christ, praying to God the Father. I saw it. Interestingly enough, John uses two different words here for sight. There are, there are more than two, but neither of the two words that he uses here uh, point to or indicate a casual observation. It's not just like I saw, you know, I was driving down the street and I saw this tree or I saw this. It's not just a casual observation he's talking about. He's saying, no, no, I perceived. I looked at to understand. I scrutinized this. And here's my conclusion This man, Jesus, is the eternal Son of God. It's legitimate. He's the one. And not only did I hear, not only did I see, but I touched. And the verb tense here indicates that John was referring to a very specific moment in history. Can you guess what that is? That's right, after the resurrection. I touched. He came back to life. He's alive. He's flesh and blood. The scars are real. I touched him. I handled him. It's all legitimate. It's all real. He wasn't a ghost. He didn't just appear to be God. No, He's there. He is flesh and blood, just like you and me. As you read through this passage, one thing you notice, even how I read it, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long sentence. If I was to write this, one of our staff members would say, that's a run-on sentence. Now, you need to fix that, Okay. But the truth is, this is one sentence in the Greek until you get to that, about halfway through verse 3. It's a long sentence. Now, you just think about this. John, just get to your point. But he keeps adding all these modifiers, right? All these different modifiers are coming in. Why? I just think that he's so enthralled with Jesus. He's so captivated by Jesus here. He's captivated by the fact that God would become man. That the sovereign of the universe would humble himself for sinners. In my office this week, I I just kept rehearsing the lyrics to Wesley's song, And Can It Be, over and over again. That third verse, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all. Immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And if God's going to die for us, it means that he became a man. That he took on flesh. How is it, church? How is it? That Jesus can become old news to us. How is it that the incarnation can become ho-hum, been there, done that, heard that? How is that? How does this not continually thrill our souls? Why is it that our hearts are so easily distracted and so easily enchanted by lesser things by vain things may God forgive us for making light of the incarnation for diminishing Jesus friends how would our lives be different 
if we live with the ever-present wonder and thrill of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. That He took on flesh. Existed perfect, in perfect harmony, in perfect joy, in perfect love from eternity. Perfect fellowship. But then took on flesh for us.